Oops, there it is. Hello. I do want to start today. Um, thank you, dads, for what you're doing, have done. There is a uh, unfortunate and precipitous lack of fathers in the world. And I think it is the tragedy of our age. And I won't elucidate on that too much, but I just thank you guys. As I, as I thought about today, which we're not doing a Father's Day message per se, but as I thought about you guys individually and who you are and the example that I've seen from you all, um, just really a blessing to be running this race with you guys and to see the outcome of your labors with your children specifically. Um, there's a bunch of good kids in this congregation and and absolutely positively moms play a huge part in that and so do you fathers. So thank you very much and praise God for the example that he gives us of what it means to be a father and we've sung th- about that a lot this morning. So thank you very much. God bless you. Now, to use a fatherly phrase to start out with this morning in our message. Anybody ever heard this? It's time to put up or shut up. That's right, I said shut up. It's time to put up or shut up. Usually when that's going on, somebody's been talking a long time. They're talking about what they can do or I could beat you in a race or I can uh, I could probably... I don't know, my car's faster than yours, whatever, all that guy stuff. And somebody says, all right, let's do it. And you're like, huh. Like, come on, it's time to put up or shut up. Now's the time when all this stuff that you've talked about and are talking about, now's the time to show me that it's true. Or show me that it's not true and that you're just full of air. Put up. Or shut up. What we're going to see in our passage today is one of those, actually two of those, put up or shut up moments. And it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how this works out. We are in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 18 through 22 today and focus on that passage. Uh, so if you would, let's, let's read that. Stand please, out of reverence and honor for the Word of God and the God of the Word, as we see these put-up or shut-up moments in God's Holy Word. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around Him, He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to Him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Let's pray. Father, by the power of your Spirit, convict us, draw us, empower us, and send us out from this place today. To follow Jesus. Holy Spirit, teach us so that we might be more like Jesus 
and give us the understanding that we need this morning in this, your holy word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be thinking, well, that's not a very big passage. No, it's not. But it packs quite the wallop, I think. So let me put up or shut up and preach. So So we have uh, been with Jesus in chapter 8 of the book of Matthew as we've worked through Matthew. And we've seen him, we said that 8, 9 kind of have a pattern. You're going to see miracles and then a little bit of a discourse, then miracles, then a little bit of a discourse, then miracles. And that's kind of chapters 8 and 9. So we saw over the last two messages these miracles that Jesus was working. He touched a leper and healed him. He healed a centurion servant just by saying the word. That was last week and and, and that was based on the authority of who Jesus is. And then he touched uh, Peter's mother-in-law and raised her up. She had a fever and she rose and began serving them. And then it says they also brought him all these sick people and demon-possessed people, and he touched or healed or delivered all of them. All of them. And so we've seen these miracles, and now this is kind of the, the, the intermediate phase here between miracles. We'll see another miracle next week or two maybe. I don't remember. I don't exactly know how to handle that passage yet. But we've got just this little bit of interchange, a little bit of dialogue here today between these miracles. And Jesus has kind of got his finger up in the wind trying to say, what do we need to do? And verse 18 tells us what conclusion he's come to. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So let's set a geographical picture here um, because this passage doesn't tell us where they're at. But we know from the previous passages that they're in, they'd come off the mountain where Jesus had preached the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And they came down into Capernaum. Capernaum. And Capernaum is on the northwest bank of the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if you'll be able to see that or not. There's a little flag up there at top. And it says Capernaum, Capernaum. That's a tough one. Capernaum, Capernaum. I don't know, Capernaum. Um, So you see it's there on the northwest bank of the Sea of Galilee. Now this is up north in Israel. If you went down south, kind of like where behind the, the wall is, you'd be in Jerusalem, Judea in that area. So this is the northern part of the, the, the country, the, the prefecture area of Israel. Under Roman rule, Romans rule them, giving them freedom to worship how they want and kind of keep their uh, ceremonial laws. But this is the northern part, okay? And that's important. There on on the Sea of Galilee, it's away from the hubbub of the big city of Jerusalem, which is the religious center of Judaism. And Capernaum's just kind of townish. I mean, just kind of like a town. Not a city... Not very rural. There's enough people there to make it not really rural. Of course, there's a fishing industry here, which right on the sea. Peter, Andrew, James, John were all from here. And we see them kind of at home as they came into Capernaum because that's, that's where they lived. Jesus was not from here. We know that Jesus was from Nazareth over there to the west. 
Um, but he kind of, well, not kind of, he made Capernaum his center of operations for his ministry. So it was where he operated out of. So as they come into Capernaum, of course, the people that were from there felt at home. Jesus felt very at home there because this is his base of operations. And we know that the, a lot of them lived here because the Bible tells us, and actually just seeing uh, last week that Peter's mother-in-law was there shows that Peter and his family lived around um, that area. So there's a lot of roots here in Capernaum. So now, here are Jesus and his disciples and his famous spreading. Okay? He's getting bigger. He's getting more popular. We had seen earlier in Matthew 4 that people were coming as far away from Syria, which is north and up, up quite a ways from here, were coming to this area to have Jesus heal them. And here they are in their home base, and they're not really putting down roots, but it's kind of like they're catching their breath. Okay? And here, in the center of their operations, what happens? They can't really settle down because Jesus sees a crowd around him. Now, I'm guessing he's kind of used to this crowd thing at this point of his ministry because it's happening a lot. He's well known. He's a local boy. At least he operates out of the local area here. He's teaching. He's healing. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven and making it look real. And people are drawn to him and they're astounded by him. So they flock to him. Either maybe just to see him, kind of like you know the Beatles, like girls yelling and screaming, ah, Jesus, I don't know if that was going on. But you know, maybe they just wanted to see him. Hey, I heard about this guy. Maybe they wanted to hear him. Maybe they wanted to be healed by him, delivered by him. But here... As will be the case often going forward, Jesus doesn't cater to the crowd. It says in our verse that when he saw a crowd around him, he did what? Organized a pledge campaign or a fundraiser to help offset some of his ministry expenses. I mean, there's a lot of people here. People mean money, right? Or maybe he polled the audience looking for potential disciples or power brokers. No, quite the opposite. He saw a crowd and he gave orders to go over to the other side. Crowd, run. Right? Seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Now, you introverts are going, no, it makes perfect sense to me. I'm down with that crowd. Let's get out of here. But this guy, Jesus, is doing ministry. He's proclaiming the kingdom of the heavens, right? And surely you would think he wants a crowd. But to use some old western vernacular, Jesus says, let's get, boys. Let's get out of here. Actually, he gave orders. Don't miss that. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. I don't miss that. The word for he gave orders means he commanded like a military superior, like somebody in charge, like somebody with what? Authority, right? He commanded. Only those with authority can give orders. And who do they give orders to? Those people who are under their authority. Are there five-star generals? If a five-star general came up to me and said, go clean the mess hall, I'd say, no, sir. Well, I'm a five-star general, and I'd say, I'm not under your authority. Now, if I was in the army, 
And I had one little bar on my sleeve, and he said, go clean the mess hall. Yes, sir. I do what I'm told because I'm under his authority. So here Jesus commands somebody to go over to the other side. So who is that? Well, it's his disciples, right? He commands them. He orders them to commandeer a boat and get them all, him and his disciples, to the other side. Now, what does that mean? You 60s children are having Jim Morrison flashbacks. Break on through to the other side. No, no, no. That's not what we're doing here. Sorry, Jim. He means the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Get in a boat and go to the other side of the sea. So let me go back to that. I thought I still had my... So they're up there in Capernaum. He's like, get in a boat and let's go to the other side. Now we're going to see in a minute where he went. And if we jump forward into Matthew... 828, it tells us, and when he came to the other side, right, to the country of the Gadarenes. Okay. Now, down, that's terrible. You see Gergasa, and there, down on the bottom is Gadara. So that area over there is the area of the Gadarenes. So these, this arrow shows us kind of where they went. Okay. So they went to the other side. Of the Sea of Galilee. Now, they didn't go length of it. They went kind of west east to the other side in the country of the Gadarenes is what Matthew 8.28 said. Now we'll talk about that maybe next week. I don't know yet. So don't hold me to that. So they get over there to the area of the Gadarenes which is the uh, region of Gadara. And that would be quite a trip. Now this is like really across the lake. I mean that's... I don't know if you've traveled by boat much. But boat trips, yeah, I'm no sailor. I don't have sea legs. I am a land lubber, okay? Land lubber, land lubber, whatever, okay? That would be quite a trip. Um, sometimes they just kind of skate, you know, from point to point up there on top of the lake. That happens a time or two. But here they actually, they cross the lake, which is quite a trip. Now, this is getting away from the crowd, Okay? Or at least this crowd. But he doesn't get away without being approached first from a couple people in our text. So Matthew eight nineteen, And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So they're working their way to the boat and a scribe comes up to Jesus. Now a scribe, we need to understand who a scribe is. Scribes were men of standing and prominence. They were held in reverence to the people because they were religious giants. Scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, these were the men of standing as far as the law of God goes. Okay, They were experts in the Mosaic law, men who others looked up to and respected. And this scribe comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, all right now. Finally, we're getting some traction with the religious elite. Maybe all that verbal butchering that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount is starting to take root. Because now we got a scribe after he'd blasted the scribes and the Pharisees in that sermon. This guy has a desire to follow Jesus. But look real close at how he addresses Jesus. What does he call him? Teacher. What were scribes? They were teachers. So this is like game recognized game, right? He was like, teacher, I'm a teacher. 
too. And I will follow you wherever you go. Now this is rabbi to the Jew. Teacher is rabbi. And is that wrong? No, it's not wrong. Jesus was surely a teacher, a rabbi. But I guess my question is, is this all that he sees of Jesus? A good teacher. Anybody ever heard that before? Jesus was a good teacher. Is that all he was? I don't know and I don't want to accuse this guy. This is really open-ended today. But after calling Jesus teacher, he tells Jesus what he, the scribe, will do. He's not seeking anything from Jesus. Here's a pretty good rule of thumb when approaching Jesus for all of us. Don't tell him what you are going to do for or with him. Let me say that again. When you're approaching Jesus, a really good rule of thumb is not to approach him and say, Jesus, I'm going to do this. Hmm. I'm going to always do this. I'm going to never do this. Jesus, I'm going to do this. Teacher, don't do that. Okay? I get the notion that this guy is either trying to impress Jesus or he's making promises to Jesus about how he'll perform while going around and being around Jesus. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Watch me. Look at me. Listen to what I'm going to do. Anybody ever made a promise to God or said something to Him that you thought He'd like or might impress Him? I have. Yeah. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll never do that again. Or the classic bargain, if you get me through this, I'll never do this again. Now this guy may have been sincere. And so was I when I was making those promises. But if he was trying to impress Jesus, how do you figure that worked out? What did we see last week? Jesus seems to be picking out rejects, we said last week, to do His work in and through. This guy's status as a scribe, his bravado of following Jesus wherever. Well, let's just say Jesus makes it hard to put up or shut up in this situation. Verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Hmm. I'm guessing that's not the reply this guy had in mind. If he was looking for Jesus to say, Yay, look at you, guy. Or, man, that's great. If that's what he wanted, he was surely disappointed. So, so get the flow of the conversation here. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Let's bring it into today. Okay, you ready? So, hey, my name's Jason. I like what you're doing, and I'd like to come along with you. Pigs got pens, and cows got barns, but I don't have a home. Okay. Alrighty then. Um, uh, hmm. Well, um, hmm. uh, okay. Um, I, what do you say to that? What an odd statement, Right? What is Jesus saying to this guy who is enthusiastically volunteering to follow Jesus wherever he goes? He's confronting this scribe with the reality that following Jesus is not going to be fun. Following Jesus is not going to be glamorous. Following Jesus is not going to be comfortable. 
Oh yeah, Jesus is attracting these great crowds and He's doing these phenomenal works and it looks so promising. But the path ahead is one of what? Suffering, hardship, loneliness, betrayal, and ultimately death. And this is shown in the current situation by Jesus saying He doesn't even have a place to lay His head. He's homeless. He has no place of his own, but relies on the kindness and charity of others to even sleep somewhere besides the side of the road. There's some contrasting thoughts about the living situation and conditions of Jesus when he was on the earth. Some say he was wealthy and that his donors lavishly cared for him. I I, I don't see that in the Bible. Scripture doesn't paint the picture of a flashy televangelist who was flying from place to place wearing $1,500 sneakers. Oops. Actually, what it paints the picture of is Jesus saying, I don't have a place to lay my head. This statement in and of itself shows that he didn't have much materially. He was an itinerant Jewish rabbi walking from place to place with this motley crew of ragtag fishermen and other disciples borrowing rooms, borrowing donkeys because he didn't have any of his own. That sounds exciting. And Jesus is saying to this scribe, Are you sure this is the life you want? And his statement is one of contrast, and it's a stark contrast. Get a hold of this. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. So you got a couple animals, foxes, birds, small stature, no ultimate consequence anything. You can't really eat them. Like that's the ultimate consequence, right? They're really just kind of irritants. Anybody ever get dropped on by a bird? It happens. Foxes would get into vineyards and eat the grapes. It's the little foxes that spoil the vines, Scripture says. So you got these two little insignificant, irritating animals. And even they have places that if they could talk, they'd say, Oh, I'm home. They have places to be safe and to sleep and be with their animal families of a sort. And what is contrasted with these foxes and birds who have places? But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. Now, don't skip this title, Son of Man. It's pretty important. Actually, it's of great importance. Jesus seems to prefer this title for Himself better than any other title. He calls Himself the Son of Man almost 80 times in the Gospels. That's a lot. But what does it mean? Well, it's a little bit cryptic and it can mean a lot, few different things, but we know one thing for sure that it does mean. Those of you who are familiar with Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel had a vision. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came, the son of man, to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, the son of man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So here in Daniel, the Son of Man is given dominion and glory and a kingdom and everybody everywhere ultimately serves Him. 
His dominion is everlasting and His kingdom shall not be destroyed. It's a messianic prophecy. It's the coming King. The King of all things. The King of kings. He is the Messiah, the anointed one of and from God. This is the Son of Man. And so back to Matthew, this Son of Man, this Messiah, is the one who has nowhere to lay his head. As opposed to foxes and birds who do. What's that a picture of? Humility. Philippians 2. Jesus did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped or held onto, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of human flesh. He laid down His life to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed upon Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, the Son of Man... Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head because He's emptied Himself. He's poured Himself out. And Jesus looks at this scribe and He says, Are you ready to do that? Because I don't have anywhere to lay my head. While on the earth, Jesus, the wandering Jewish rabbi, was more destitute than foxes and birds. And so, Mr. Scribe, about that following him, wherever, is that something you're still feeling good about? Well, we don't know if he did or didn't. There's no definitive statement here in Matthew or any other gospel that says whether or not this scribe took this warning and accepted the challenge. There's no mention of who he was or what he did. But it's not just him. Verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So here it's not a scribe, but another of the disciples. Which kind of links the scribe as a disciple as well. And here... Another of the disciples says something to Jesus. Again, Jesus is just trying to get to the boat and get across the lake. People come up, I'm going to follow you. Got nowhere to lay my head. Hey, 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 Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, we said in previous messages that there are differences in the people that are following Jesus. There are his disciples, the ones he had handpicked Peter, Andrew, James, John, and such. Then there were people who followed him around and helped care for him out of their own provisions. There were people who followed him around wherever he went. And then there were the crowds of people that gathered all around him in the different towns and places that he traveled to. All of these people could be called disciples as they are learning from Jesus. The word disciple is a word that means learner, ultimately. You're disciples of A lot of people, because you learn from a lot of people, hopefully. And all those different groups of people could be called disciples, although it would be in all different manner of that word. What would become the twelve were disciples whom Jesus would end up calling and sending out as apostles, a very select group of twelve men, period. That's those disciples, 
But many, many people of Jesus' day and in our day could be called disciples of Jesus. Some were casual listeners. Other were more interested engagers. Some were totally invested, giving their lives to what Jesus taught and did, but they could all be called disciples. So here in verse 21, it says, Another of the disciples said to him. Now we don't know who that disciple is. We don't know who this refers to. And we don't even know what group of disciples that he's in. Could have been a casual listener, an interested engager, or it could have been one of Jesus' own chosen twelve. We don't know. But... This disciple approaches Jesus after Jesus had commanded that he and his disciples were to go across the lake. And this guy says, hey, can I take care of something before crossing the lake? Why would he do this? Why would he ask this question in the first place? Well, we've got to jump over into Luke for just a verse. Luke 9.59, parallel passage, gives us this insight. To another, he, Jesus said, follow me before he got in the boat. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So who initiated this conversation ultimately? Jesus did. Jesus looked at this guy and said, follow me. And the guy's like, ah, let me go bury my father. Jesus had made a commandment. Jesus had commanded this disciple to follow him. But then he threw out a request to see if he can do something before following Jesus and following and keeping his commands. What's the guy's request? Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Well, this is intriguing. First of all, he calls Jesus Lord. That says something, not just a teacher. Shows the same familiarity with who Jesus is. Again, maybe one of the twelve, I don't know. Maybe this guy's a little bit creeped out at the thought of crossing the lake. The Sea of Galilee was known for terrible storms. We'll see one next week. They could just come out of nowhere. And they were awful. And even these seasoned fishermen cry out next week, Ah, we're dying. So this was a scary proposition to cross the lake. And maybe this guy's feeling like, I don't know about this. Either way, this guy, this disciple, was asking if maybe he could take care of some things before actually following Jesus. And what's his request again? Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now that's logical, right? But there's serious indication that this guy's dad wasn't dead yet. If he had been dead, the family would have been assembled and grieving. Jewish protocol would not have allowed a son to, to not be at home if his father was dead. Now maybe his dad was sick and was dying. Maybe he was really old and they were expecting things to progress quickly. But it doesn't appear that his dad was dead. So this guy was saying, hey, I'll come follow you in just a little while. I, I, I just can't right now. Surely you understand. And it seems practical and logical. It makes good sense. And what does Jesus say? And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now that is not politically correct. That is not baby Jesus meek and mild. You thought the foxes and the birds thing was rough. Yikes. 
This disciple is thinking, I need to get out. I need to go take some care of things, take care of some things, get some things straightened out, help my old man out. It's Father's Day, right? I need to get him and my family taken care of. And then, well, then I can follow Jesus after that. I just need to let Jesus know what's up so he can accommodate my schedule. Talk about a rude awakening. Instead of finding Jesus' understanding and pulling out his planner, let's see, Jesus' planner, well, this guy's coming. We'll say, when are you coming? I'll pencil you in. That's not what happens. He blank-facedly says, taking account Luke's view again, follow me. The command is follow me. But then he punctuates it emphatically with... <laughs> And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now what's that mean? It means, since we're pretty sure dad wasn't dead, let those who are spiritually dead, not following Jesus, bury each other. Oof. Jesus is saying, me and my guys are going across this lake right now and you should follow me not worrying about those at home who are not here. There is work to be done. There are places to go. And if you leave here now, you probably won't be back anytime soon, if at all. Now is the time for you to choose who it is that you are going to serve. Are you going to serve yourself? Are you going to serve your family? Or are you going to serve the king of the kingdom of the heavens? Make your pick. Put up or shut up. Now, because we are going across this lake now. Are you? And just like the scribe, we don't have the answer of whether or not this guy followed Jesus or not. We're left with a simple period at the end of Jesus' command to follow him and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Period. Now what I want you to see from that is there's no compromise There's no accommodation. There's no exceptions and no understanding from Jesus. But he's just rude then. Just the command to come now. Obedience or disobedience. Put up or shut up. Now. Make up your mind and act now. And so ends our passage for today. Well, uh, hmm. you ever feel unresolved? <laughs> Not quite. Now, we didn't read verse 23 in our public reading, but I, I, we're going to look at it before we delve into application because I think it finishes up awfully well after all this. Look at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And there you go. Did the scribe or the disciple mentioned in 18 through 22 get in the boat? If they were truly Jesus' disciples, chosen and commanded by Him, they did. And if they weren't, well, they didn't. It's that simple. That certainly doesn't answer all of our questions about the two individuals specifically, but it tells us all that we need to know. Jesus' true disciples heard the command of their Lord. They got in the boat after Him and they followed Him. Period. 
Jesus' true disciples had heard the call of Jesus, they had counted the cost, and they had resolved to follow Him whenever and wherever He commanded. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no coconuts. No requests for special arrangements or plans for later. It was get in the boat and sail with Jesus to the other side. Now we'll see next week that they have itty-bitty failing faith in the boat, but they followed in this moment. They obeyed the direct command. They didn't stay with the crowd or try to work out details for even their closest of kin. They were sold out to Jesus as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I know they didn't fully understand all that in this moment, but they obeyed His direct command because they were His disciples. And He was the Master. And when He got in the boat, His disciples followed Him. And it really is that simple. No excuses. Only obedience. See, you can't say the words no and Lord in a direct reply to a direct command of that Lord. Do this. No. You can't do that to the Lord. And Him be the Lord. And Him be your Lord. And if you do, we talked Wednesday night about the discipline of God. You don't want that. If He is indeed the Lord and you are truly His servant, you are truly His disciple, or you are truly His friend, all three, you will do what He says. He says, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. And true disciples do it in the midst of fear, In the grip of uncertainty and with failing faith, we say, yes, okay. Maybe they aren't sure of everything, but they're sure of one thing. Jesus is Lord and He's made a command. And that determines their response to whatever command comes. So the question is, how are we doing with that? Well, let's explore that through application. Three C's on this fine Father's Day. Call, cost, and consummation. Call, cost, and consummation. First one, probably the hardest one, honestly. Maybe not. See what you think. Call. Listen to me. Please, please, please. Listen to what I'm about to say. By way of application, by way of what we've seen today, call. You don't call yourself into discipleship. You don't. I have decided to follow Jesus. Really? Let's talk about that. Listen to me. The calling of Jesus is definite and effective. While he called to all who would come, and he still does, the outward call is not enough to bring people to an understanding of his lordship. Stay with me. Some plowing to do here at the end. There has to be an inward call. 
by the power of the Holy Spirit Himself for anyone to come to Jesus. This makes this calling the work of God, not the work of man. I can say the right words today. I can bring the power of God in the form of the gospel, but if He doesn't make that power the power unto salvation, it is not going to get done. And I'm sure some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, oh, now you're getting off into that election and calling stuff. And yes, I am. And the Bible is clear that this is the case. John 6, 43-47, Jesus speaking. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. There's a command. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say, whoever believes has eternal life. Now what did Jesus just say? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's not complicated. And I'm not trying to condescend or be mean. That's just plain. I'll follow you anywhere. No, you won't. If the Father hasn't drawn you, you won't. You'll stand there slack-jawed and weak-kneed as the boat crosses the sea. Because it's your gumption, your want, your desire that's brought you face-to-face with Jesus. And He leaves you behind. Because the Father hasn't drawn you. Paul says it this way in a favorite passage, Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. God pre-knew us, which means He set His intimate love on us, not just knew what was going to happen. Pre-knowledge means pre-loving. Before the foundation of the world, in that foreknowledge, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Love these people. I'm going to conform them to the image of my Son whom I love as well. And then He called us. Then He justified us and glorified us. It was all done by God for God's glory before we were ever thought of here on earth in human terms. God calls and in calling brings us to Himself. It's His work. Why is this important? What's the application? It's to know that if you have an inward pull to God, an inclination to seek Him, He gets the glory for that. Not Billy Graham. Not John Piper. Not Charles Stanley. Not Jason Moore. For heaven's sake. Not any human being. Brothers and sisters, if you have a longing for God in your heart, if you have heard or are hearing a call of God on your life, praise Him! Honor Him! Thank Him! You didn't suddenly get smart enough to figure this out. You didn't suddenly get good enough to impress God on your own. The biblical description of your condition before this call from God is that you were dead. Don't believe me? And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now look at that. Dead. In sins and trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedience, passions of your flesh, desires of your body and mind, children of wrath. Now do you think anyone in that state is going to just one day think by themselves, well, I guess I'll follow Jesus now. No way. God has to call. And God has to empower His people to come and follow Him. And we see that, I think, in this scribe. This guy's got an idea. He's got, to, he's, got, he's got to figure it out. And Jesus slaps him in the face with, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, and i got nowhere to lay my head. Some of you are thinking, John 3.16, though. Whosoever will, right? It's true, absolutely, positively, yes. And let's read that in context. John 3.16-21. through 21. For God so loved the world... That He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Okay, with you. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Those who believe in Jesus empowered by the Spirit are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already. Now this is in the context of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus and saying, you must be born again. Go get yourself born. I dare you. Give it a shot. You can't do it. Jesus says the wind blows where it will and you feel the effect of it, but you can't see where it's coming or where it's going. So it is with those who are led by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work to... Born us again. To breathe new life into us that we did not have before He breathed on us. And I know, I know, I know, not everybody sitting here this morning goes, Oh yeah, yeah, I get that. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I know this by way of application. If you have been called into the family of God, if you have been called by the Master, the Lord, to be His disciple, He should get glory for it. And only He should get glory for it. Scribe, Pharisee, disciple, whoever you are, if you have witnessed, experienced the inward call of God, Praise Him. Don't give Him your resume and tell Him why He should choose you. Bask in the glory that the Father of the fatherless adopted me into His family. A sinner condemned unclean.
Let's call. Second, I said the first one's hardest, maybe not. Second, cost. In call, you don't call yourself into discipleship. Under cost, you don't set the terms of your discipleship. I'd say if we could set the terms or parameters of how to follow Jesus, we'd probably cut some corners. We'd do it our way, like Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. It's a theme song of hell. I did it my way. You don't set the terms of your discipleship. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, I got a slide change. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's the first step here? Deny yourself. What's after that? Take up your cross. And then what's after that? Then you follow me. You can't shortcut that process. You can't just jump to follow me because you're not going to follow him if you have not denied yourself. You're not going to take up your cross if you haven't denied yourself. You can't. He says you can't. And you have to lose your life to follow Jesus. You have to lose your life to follow Jesus. That's the cost. Now let me ask you this. Have you counted that cost? Or did you have a warm feeling one day in church and said, Man, I like this. This is good. I enjoy this. I feel like maybe I should do something about this Jesus thing. And you come forward and somebody prayed for you and you signed a card and you got baptized and that's, those are great things. And they don't save you. They don't save you. Or did the Holy Spirit of God convict you of your sins? and your need of a Savior, and you look to Jesus and you recognize that He is the Lord, He is the Master, He is the Savior who died for my sins in my place on a cross, was buried and resurrected, and now sits enthroned at the right hand of God, and it's Him that I'm going to serve, and I don't want what I want anymore. I want what He wants. That's salvation. Jesus says it this way. In Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, great to see you guys. Glad there's a big crowd here. No. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. That's the mocking voice. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. What is it going to cost you to be Jesus' disciple? Everything. And man, I don't think we grasp that in America today. 
Not yet. And you're like, well, this is a bummer. And it's not. It's not a bummer. This is not a punishment or a command to something that's bad for us or even hard for us. I've got to give up my mud pies for a holiday at the sea. Poor me. I've got to give up my 1979 Ford Pinto for a 2019 Ferrari, whatever Ferrari thing is. Poor me. You get to lose your life in order that you might have eternal, abundant, overflowing, pressed down, shaken together, too much life for you to handle kind of life. You get to lose your sin and your guilt and your shame and stand forgiven and whole and holy before the King of the universe. That's the cost. I lose all the bad and get all the good. You ready to count that cost? You're like, what about this stuff about moms and dads and hating them and what's what's all that about? Compared to knowing Jesus, if need be, I need to be able to turn my back on my mother, on my father, on my brother, on my sister and say, if you are hindering me from following Jesus, I've got to follow Him. Why? Because with Him are the words of eternal life. Like what? I've got to hate them. I've got to turn away from them. And be willing to leave them behind if need be. Now again, I'm not in that situation. My mom and dad followed Jesus. I don't have to despise them. Maybe some of you are not in that situation. There are plenty of people all across the world who if they say that they're going to follow Jesus, their family will put them out. Different religions, different places. Don't bring that Jesus stuff in here. Okay, I won't. I'll leave. And it's worth the cost. Which is our last point. Call, cost, and consummation. You don't pick the destination of your discipleship. God did. And it's a pretty good one. John 6, 38-40, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. Listen, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Anybody want some of that? Yeah. I want that. And the fact that I want it testifies to the greatness of God and His calling in my life. If you're in your sins, you don't want that. Oh, you want to live forever. And you want to go to heaven. But you don't want this eternal life that Jesus is talking about. You want your stuff. You want your things. You want your life. 
And Jesus says, i got something better. We referenced it, but I've got to bring it up here again as we're talking about consummation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and, those, brothers. and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, when Jesus calls you to get in the boat, you're already on the other side. Woo! That's good news. If he loved me enough to call me, He's going to get me through to the other side. Actually, I'm already there. Those are past tense verbs. He predestined, He called, He justified, and He glorified. I am hidden in Christ with God in the very presence of the angels of heaven. And they, the Father rejoices over me with loud singing because I am glorified in Christ. And one day that will actually happen to my physical body. That's the consummation of all this. That's the end of all of this. You didn't pick that. You wouldn't pick that. But God did. Last passage. We're almost done, y'all. Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of, because of, because of, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and woe is me. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the consummation of your discipleship. That's the end result. And you didn't pick that. But God designed it from eternity past and said, I have set my love on these people. I have called them. I have predestined them. I have justified them. And I have glorified them. That's God's doing. And these two men today that we saw in our passage, I don't know if they saw that or not. They either walked away from that shore, sad, mad, scared, worried, they were in that boat with Jesus headed to the other side which brings us to the end of all things where are you today are you watching him sail away going he wouldn't even let me bury my dad or he must not know who I am or are you in the boat going oh boy (laughs) oh boy There's my Jesus. There's my Lord. And he's going to go take a nap. Hmm. This could get interesting. And it does. Let's pray. God, I have to be honest with you and these people and myself. I don't always like your plan. Fix me. Convict me. Draw me. Heal me. 
Empower me so that I may see Jesus as the most beautiful above all things. And may His words of command, His words of demand be music to my ears because I know that He is causing me to be conformed to His image. And it will bring forth glory now and through eternity in my life and ultimately for you, God. May I be so concerned about your glory that I count everything else as rubbish. And God, if there are those here this morning who have not heard that inward call of the Holy Spirit saying, repent and believe the gospel. Holy Spirit, do that work now. Please, we ask you, do what only you can do. Breathe life on dead people. And may we all count the cost and look to that point of consummation knowing that it's all worth it and then some. Help us to love your will. Help us to love your commands. Help us to love your plan so that you might get glory in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a familiar and beautiful benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all of God's people said... Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can, y'all.